imagine if you lived in northern Japan six or seven years ago when the earthquake uh, set off a tidal wave that washed across the northern shoreline. And if you happen to be home at the time when the earthquake happened and the tidal surge came rolling through your village and happened to get to a higher floor to watch it happen, and you saw over the course of, you know, an hour, that your village was destroyed. And much of what people had accumulated for lifetime had gotten washed out to sea. And then the you know, nuclear reactor gets flooded and spews its toxins over the land so they can't so that no one can live there or farm there for a few hundred years. And just imagine that that happened to you. And when you could, you came down off the roof, out onto the street, who would you hope to meet? What kind of person would you want to meet? Clearly, you'd want somebody who was clear-eyed and understood what just happened. And had some wisdom to anticipate what's coming next. And someone who was compassionate because there's a lot of suffering. And someone who's generous, who can share what they have of knowledge, time, skills, materials with others and someone who is energetic to begin the task of reorganizing life and who is honest can be honest in their speaking honest in their actions someone who's patient knowing that it's a long road ahead these qualities of the person you'd like to meet, or you'd like the person that you meet to have, are the very qualities that the Bodhisattva perfected in order to become a Buddha. And these qualities are called the paramis. Parami means both uh, perfection, purity, and has something to do with the highest is peak. So it is the perfection of the mind, development of the mind. It is the purification of the mind of attachment, aversion, and confusion. And they are purification. Yeah. So these are the qualities that good human beings have everywhere on the face of the earth. Every culture, every village values people who have these qualities. Well, we live in a time of transition, maybe turmoil, maybe big upheaval, paradigm shift, uh, where the forces that have been leashed upon our world are huge 
and they have consequences far beyond the reach of our individual action to abate. In some ways we could say that the forces at play in the world today, the political forces, the economic forces, the environmental conditions, the uh, social and religious um, conflict, these forces move us around. And any one of us, all of us, could be facing something as devastating as that tidal wave in Japan. In some ways we could say, and we know, that each one of us has a tsunami headed towards us. And it could be a personal health tsunami, it could be a personal finance tsunami, it could be a relationship tsunami, it could be a career tsunami, it could be social dislocation tsunami. It's, we don't know. But we do know we are vulnerable to it. So while we all wish for security, pleasure, uh, safety, uh, having a sense of abundance, uh, being well off, a sense of well-being, we don't control that. So, in, it is reasonable to uh, understand, not necessarily to anticipate or expect, but to understand that we may be faced with considerable challenge. Trouble. Trouble ahead. What can we do for ensuring our well-being during the inevitable trouble ahead. What kind of contingency plans can we make other than developing these very qualities of heart? Because as we can see, everything can be wiped out. And we're left with our bodies and our minds and our the quality of our minds. George Dreyfus, one of the Tibetan translators, he says, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being. And a sense of well-being is not dependent on the immediate conditions. It de depends on the condition of one's heart, the development of one's heart, in that, that, that are available in every condition, pleasant or unpleasant. So these... Ten paramis in the Theravada Buddhist tradition are called the uh, paramis, the, the development of the mind. So when you reflect on who you know, either from history or contemporary times, or even personal friends and acquaintances, who what what, what makes them good? in the good sense of the word, good. I can think of and know of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel winner in Burma, who 
by speaking her mind in a military repressed country was put under house arrest for 27 years. But didn't falter, didn't give up, but just, you know, kept her own integrity and spoke truth to power as necessary and is now, in some substantial sense, a powerful political leader in Burma or Nelson Mandela. Similarly, how many years was he imprisoned, out of touch, and yet maintained his integrity, his ability to speak the truth? Martin Luther King saying, knowing that he would meet hidden racism in Detroit, marched there to expose it knowing how dangerous it was, but being fearless in his, you know, compassion. Or Mother Teresa, living in Calcutta, going out every morning to find someone who was dying that day, to bring them to the nunnery, to care for them, to give them uh, the human dignity of dying clean and cared for. Not trying to solve the world's problem, not a social worker, just doing something kind every day. These people, and you may know people, neighbors, who have equally uh, admirable development of any of these qualities. But these people are humans just like us. And they have taken some quality of the heart and they have developed it to an ex what seems to be an extraordinary degree by doing simple acts many times. We have that same potential. We have the same potential to speak the truth, to be compassionate, to be energetic, to be generous. There's no limitation in our heart to developing our heart as any of them have. These qualities are the default setting of the mind purified of attachment, aversion, and confusion. And in Theravada Buddhism, there are ten. The first two our generosity and morality, which are what the Buddha called two of the three pillars of the Dharma. If you wish to establish your life in the Dharma, if you wish to live the Dharma, uh, inhabit the Dharma, so to speak, be guided by the Dharma, there are these three trainings that we must do. Practice of generosity, practice of sila, living ethically, and developing the mind. Two of these are these purifications. The third is letting go, renunciation. The whole practice is letting go. Letting go of views and opinions, letting go of material things to support and be generous to others, letting go of wrong views, letting go of this sense of self. 
Wisdom too, and energy are two of these qualities that I spoke about earlier in our two of the five uh, keys to unlocking the heart. Patience, truthfulness, and resolve also similarly qualities. And then there's loving kindness and equanimity, two of the four, what are called the Brahma-viharas, or divine abidings. And we can hear from, you know, these qualities that we all have, we all know them. They're not, you know, unreachable, they're not foreign. But it's said that the Bodhisattva perfected these qualities of heart over the course of hundreds of lifetimes in his journey to awakening to become a Buddha. It perfected them, meaning brought them to such a development in his heart that they were the default setting of his mind. Meaning, when confronted with challenging situation, patience, love, generosity, truthfulness, this is where his heart first turned, even before aversion and chagrin and frustration and disappointment. And so, this is what it means to take on the bodhisattva path, or even to just practice to support our own awakening is to develop these qualities as much as we can to become the default setting of our mind, default setting of our heart. First response to challenging situations. Now, we all have these qualities as a potential within our heart. And we all have experienced all of them. We've all been patient, we've all been generous, we've all been loving, we've all been equanimous, we've all been truthful. And yet, doesn't take much to see that there's room for improvement. So, we know that there is a way to develop the heart in these qualities. And if we listen, if we acquire the knowledge, if we understand how they can be developed, and we learn the skillful means to do so, and we practice, and we correct our practice, and we learn through our own wisdom, through our own experience, how to actually practice them, then we too can develop these qualities. But we can be sure that we are going to have to confront our conditioning. Because our conditioning has not resulted in us having these qualities as default setting of the mind. But they're all inherent within us. And they're not particularly Buddhist. I might use a Pali word to describe them, but I can say them in English too. They're not particularly Buddhist. They're not even very spiritual, or exotic, or esoteric. They're kind of ordinary, aren't they? It's kind of like mundane, just human. Recognize as valued within every spiritual, religious, cultural, social group. But even though we see that the paramis uh, lie as a potential in our heart, we may not have made it a personal value. We may not value them within ourselves as much as we recognize they're possible in others. So while they may be an obvious choice for good behavior, 
It doesn't happen without a choice and practice or intelligent reflection on how to how to practice these qualities of mind. And when we do make a decision, if we do decide, I want these qualities in my life, then it's going to be a practice. It's going to require attention. It's going to require mindfulness. Because how else are we going to develop these qualities unless we remember to recognize the present moment and choose among these qualities how to respond rather than to react out of deeply conditioned habit. So we know we'll be going against the stream of our conditioning when we take on equanimity. Equanimity is the balanced mind, the mind that can find the middle between extremes. Well, we know the political, social discourse in this country now is so partisan and so shrill that anybody who's looking for the middle, looking for the common ground, is drowned out and not even heard and not really respected or valued. And so the more partisan, the more shrill, the more extreme, well, the more you get recognized. So we can see, you know, to, to stake our heart on the, in the middle path of accommodation and understanding and integration and collaboration, equanimity, balance, finding the middle way, least harm to most people. That's not, that's not our contemporary condition. So, to practice any of these, we will need some honest insight into the nature of our relationships with one another. Because all of them are about being compassionate. While we can value them, we may even approve of them, we may recognize others who are skilled in any of these qualities, it's difficult to walk or talk. But through insight we can learn a new way of living through practice. We can cultivate these qualities and instead of just kind of Dharma binging on retreat, we can actually live a Dharma-infused lifestyle, becoming a good human being in the process. So we take the paramis as a practice, because they're practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. Remember, the Fourth Noble Truth is the path to be developed by each one of us in order to awaken to realize the end of suffering, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. All of these practices of the paramis are practices of the full path. Generosity, right action. Morality, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Renunciation, right thought. Wisdom, right view, right thought. Energy, right effort. Patience, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Truthfulness, right speech. Resolve, right speech, action, livelihood, thought. Loving kindness, right thought. Equanimity, right view. To develop the Eightfold Noble Path, 
we practice the paramis. There are all eightfold path factors. Now, there's interesting. You know, there's a the Buddha gave a discourse on karma. You know, there's dark karma, which leads to pain, suffering, unpleasantness. And there's light karma, which leads to in the other direction. But then he said there's this karma that is neither dark nor light. What is that? He then goes on to say that the karma that is neither dark nor light is the karma that leads to the end of karma. And it's any practice of any of the Noble Eightfold Path factors. Huh. Because it leads to the end of suffering. It doesn't lead to more pleasantness or less, you know, more suffering. It leads to the end of karma. So to develop these paramis is the karma that leads to the end of karma. While they're all practices of the Eightfold Path Factors, they're all mindfulness practices, they're all happiness practices, they're also all practices of letting go. We have to let go of something all the time. It's this, this whole path of renunciation, letting go of attachment to possessions, to time, to knowledge, letting go of causing harm, letting go of habits, views and opinions, letting go of naive, passivity, letting go of impatience, letting go of dramatizing natural occurrences and experiences by being equanimous. It's all about letting go. And the only way we can let go of something is to know we're holding on. To know the pain of holding on to something. The suffering that it causes us, and when acted out, causes others. And when we know that, then we can see, then we can understand why we can let go. Why we, it would be skillful to let go. And some letting go can happen just by being aware. Some lets go by making a choice. A lot lets go by training the mind. And this is what we've been doing here, is training the mind. One yogi recently on retreat said, I don't want to live a lifestyle of being on retreat, but I want the benefit of the Dharma in my life. So how do we do that? We can see, even being on retreat for a week, that there's something special, something Something develops in our heart, some sensitivity, some care, some awareness, some wakefulness, some uh, we're able to touch further into our own heart and touch others more sensitively, more carefully, more intimately, more truthfully. How do we do that? Well, we practice the paramis. The paramis are the householder's practice. So that when we leave the intensive retreat, where we're doing really close observation of the mind, when we leave the retreat and we go back to our domestic and civic and social and professional and personal lives and all the activities and all the obligations and all the relationships that we have there, is there ever a day go by when you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? If you can remember. Or to practice equanimity, when you can remember, or to practice truthfulness, if you have a commitment to, or to practice generosity of time, of knowledge, 
of material goods. Every day, every day, we're faced with dozens of opportunities to practice the paramis. If we choose. And these are the very qualities that prepare the heart for the truth of awakening. I've talked about the truth of for the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. It's not easy, it's not easy to open to dukkha, to acknowledge dukkha. Why? Because it's it's against our conditioning. And yet we need to prepare. We need to prepare our heart to be able to remain steady and clear-eyed to see, oh, this is the way it is. And so we practice these, these paramis to stabilize our heart in all conditions, to, to, to practice letting go of attachment, letting go of aversion, letting go of delusion. In our conventional... Uh, circumstantial, contingent life, so that we can see more deeply into our heart when we have the opportunity to look. So these paramis are practice of happiness, but it's not always obvious how to practice to be happy. So it takes practice, it takes repetition. Many times we try to practice patience, or truthfulness. And, you know, sometimes sometimes it doesn't bring us immediate happiness. It seems to bring us more trouble, more difficulty, more self-consciousness, more criticism. And so it takes learning. How do we do this so that we can be both, so that we experience immediate happiness upon practicing any of these paramis, and we have a, we develop a, a, an ongoing sense of well-being This is, this is the work. This is what, you know, when you want to know how do we take awareness, practice, out of the retreat setting, practice, practice the paramis. So the paramis are the foundation for, and in Burma where I was practicing as a monk and this tradition of practice comes from, the understanding is as householders, practice the paramis as much as possible, and annually take a retreat. And But when they think of taking a retreat, it's a month or two, a year. And if you just commit to doing something like that, whether it's a, a one-week retreat, a one-month retreat, or two months retreat, any month, any retreat, if you just do that for, well, the rest of your life, I mean, after all, what are we here for, Right? you can see that there would be a, a profound transformation in your heart. Not just in one retreat, not just in one day, not just in one parami, but if you made it the priority in your life to develop the paramis, to practice in intensive retreat, to, to monitor the depth of liberation in the mind, year after year, huge transformation. This is what it means to develop the Eightfold Noble Path. <clears throat>